Welcome back to ES3N. I am your host, Markelio Atkins. We have Richard Donnell and we have Christopher Leopold. And we're back at one of my favorite points that we talk about, the sweet science of boxing. And over the past weekend, I know I'm going to butcher this name, just call him the mean machine, but I'm going to try it. Edgedefs, <laughs> Kowaleskas versus Canadian contender Mike Mikhail Zuski. It was a pretty good fight. I found it very interesting this weekend. Rich, tell me how you feel about it. Yeah, so starting to get into kind of boxing a little more, um, wanting to learn more about boxing, wanting to learn more about these fighters, this, this was a great fight for someone who doesn't know a lot about it because you look at these two guys and they're both very put together. And so what I envision in a fight when I look at these guys is exactly what we got. They came out throwing haymakers. They came out blow for blow, unloading on each other. And then when that eighth round came, it went yeet, yeet, yeet. And it was over that fast. I mean, that's what I I watch boxing for, the entertainment. The other knowledge you pick up as you go uh, is a bonus to help you understand what is the sport of boxing. Uh, which is still what I what I'm learning, but as a new fan, um, trying to learn more, I thought this was a perfect fight for somebody who's not knowledgeable because you can at least see what these guys are putting into it when when they're when they're in the main event. Yeah, yeah, I thought it I thought it was great, man. Um, I I love the back and forth of it. However. You know, I'm a little bit more of the cerebral person when it when it comes to boxing. I really appreciate the counter punching. I appreciate the feints. I even appreciate some of the hugging, which I know Chris Chris hates. But sometimes you have to grab on. Um, you know, when you're when you're fighting inside, to, you know, to get better position. It depends if you're fighting against someone that's super aggressive. That might be part of you know frustrating him. Um, I like. Uh, what I really, I really liked about this match was the fact that both these guys just there was no defense, man. They just they wanted to knock each other out, and I really thought I thought that the Mean Machine was going to go down, man. After because uh, Mikael had a very good early part of that round, even seventh round before he got uh, knocked down the first time. He came out and he was winning that round until. Um, the Mean Machine hit him with a couple good left hooks to the body and dropped those hands a little bit. You can kind of see he was peppering him with the jab, but he was still getting caught. The Mean Machine was still getting caught, and I thought it was a possibility that the Canadian could come out on top. But that one that one uppercut, just like the uppercut we saw the week before. And, le- and let me ask you this, Marquillo, because this is not something that I have seen yet in the, in the fights that I have watched. Correct me if, if I'm wrong, the Mean Machine... I uh, had a real nasty cut underneath his eye. When something like that happens, explain what is the protocol? When do they determine they have to stop the fight? What is 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 the what do they got to do to get it to stop? What are the rules on something like that where there is blood coming out? Well, I mean, each each commission and each place where they're actually having the fight might have slightly different rules, but just kind of generally speaking, it can it, it can be determined if it was a punch that started the cut and then unable to continue. That could be a technical knockout. 
However, if it's a foul or something, you know, uh, to that nature, it could also be at that point to where they go to the cards and see how the cards is. Um, Just like even in this fight, um, when when he had the knockdown, I think they had mentioned that he was that the Mean Machine was actually losing this fight. Losing the cards, yeah. Yeah, he was losing on the cards. So if it wasn't for that knockout, could have had a, a very different result. So it, just, it really, it really depends. Um, it depends what the rules are, and it, it depends on how that cut is actually manifested. So, well, you're not wrong, Markilio. I, I am. I'm looking for the knockout, and I want to point out how did this fight end? Knockout. Then what's it get? Bam, bam. Chris Lepo, Leopold, seal of approval for a good fight because that's what I came to see. I didn't come to see hugging. I didn't come to see whispering in his ear or dancing around the fight or a little stick like a butterfly, baby. I came to see somebody get knocked the out. Okay, but Chris, to, to that, to what you're saying, and this is going to lead us into the next part here. In the Miguel Mariaga fight and Joette Gonzalez, there was not a knockout, but I thought still it, it was a great fight to watch. There wasn't the hugging, but there were there was no knockout. But there was still, I thought, a for the most part, a back and forth fight. So for everybody out there that's listening, uh, now we're referring to the second fight that was on that uh, on the undercard, which was Joe Gonzalez versus Miguel Mariega. Um, Mariega was just coming off of this is like his fourth title fight. He lost to Oscar Valdez, which is an upcoming good fighter. He lost to Lomachenko as well. And I think he lost to Nate Walters, which was also a champion. So he had three shots, and this was going to be his fourth shot where he was going up against Joette Gonzalez. And we were just talking a little bit earlier about Joette Gonzalez, and he has kind of an interesting backdrop story too. Uh, just as the Mean Machine has just came off a loss from Terrence Crawford, Joette Gonzalez came off a loss of some people might call Terrence Crawford's younger brother, uh, which is Shakur Stevenson, another young fighter. But what I was saying earlier and was kind of part of the backdrop with that fight was when he fought, when Joette Gonzalez fought Shakur Stevenson, he was fighting for the pride of his family and to possibly get a belt at that time because Shakur Stevenson was actually dating the, the younger sister of Joette. So Joette's father, which is his, also his manager, pushed him to take that fight and really wanted him to kick Shakur Stevenson's butt because he didn't like Shakur Stevenson. But unfortunately, Joette Gonzalez came up on the short end of that stick. So that's a that's kind of a, a little funny story within itself. Chris, how would it feel, man? You got you got to fight for your family pride, and, and your dad put you up to the fight, and you come back and with, with an L. Not only an L, you got what? I gotta tell you, Thanksgiving's gonna be an interesting one at their house. You know what fight I'd pay to watch? The one that's going to happen over Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> because it's coming. I don't see how it's going to happen, right? If if your brother-in-law or future brother-in-law or whatever, whatever it may be, laid one on you like that, could you imagine sitting across the table from him at Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, you better not be shooting off your mouth because it's going to be a rematch right there in the driveway, and there ain't going to be any, any ref to pull him off, man. It's it's going to be epic. I'll tell you, that's where I, I want a piece of pumpkin pie at that table. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of that, guys, uh, just to kind of wrap up this portion of this segment, we do have an interesting fight uh, this this weekend. I know Charlo fights, but even bigger fight coming up in October, uh, Saturday, October 17th. You got the WBA and the WBO champion, Vasali uh, Lomachenko. And you got the IBF champion, Tiafimo Lopez. They'll battle for the lightweight unification bout. I'm really excited about looking at that fight, guys. Tiafimo Lopez is a young, strong fighter. Vasily Lomachenko is possibly one of the greatest amateur fighters ever. I think his his amateur record is like 330 and two. So, so that lets you know how good this dude is. And for him to be ranked pound for pound over Terrence Crawford with just 15 fights lets you know how good of a boxer. They call him the Matrix because of, uh, of the angles that he takes in his boxing IQ. But what I question about Lomachenko is that chin. He's never really had anyone test that chin. And they said that Lomachenko is kind of, you know, he, he hasn't went up against those really, really strong fighter. He's went up against crafty boxers, but when you're one of the craftiest boxers, you know, it's not really a challenge. The, the, the crafty boxers got to fight the sluggers, right? The bangers. That's the ones that pre- present the challenge. So, uh, you guys been watching any of that that information? Uh, Lomachenko and Team Fimo Lopez, uh, the fight on the 17th. You guys excited about that? I'm ready. I'm about to say, I'm absolutely excited about that, you know, because I think there's a lot of potential for that to be a knockout, drag out, slug out fight, which is what I want to see out of boxing. Now, I'm not overly familiar with the management companies in this. When I hear unification match, I think in my mind, how hard was that match to make under the current political system in boxing? Uh, are these guys coming out of the same camp fight, same sort of uh, management camps, or what's going on here? How did these guys manage to get a unification badge fight down when so many others can't seem to pull it together? Well, a lot of pressure had been put on Lomachenko on fighting better quality opponents. So Tiafimo was a, a young stallion that was coming up, and it only makes sense um, as, a, as a boxer. That's what you really want to do. You go down in history by being a great boxer, by unifying the, the, the belts and jumping up in so many divisions, such as Manny Pacquiao, and, and, and winning belts and unifying the belts, being undisputed. And um, that's what makes this so good. You have the WBA, WBO, and IBF. You're just missing the WBC. But that person, whoever wins this fight, will no doubt be the man in the lightweight division. You got people like Devin Haney, you got Shakur Stevenson, even in that light that lightweight division. And um it's it's very competitive, man. I'm really looking forward to it. But with that being said, we'll wrap up that w- this week uh, of, of boxing. Well, hold, hold on, hold on. We're we're not we're certainly not moving past the Wilder Fury Fury rematch. Oh yeah, okay. We're not going to start into a limited topic that my, my knowledge is so limited on and not talk about the fight. We're all going to want to see now because, Markelia, you and I watched the last one together. The costume, Wilder's costume was cool. I certainly thought he was going to come in. Shredder, and baby. Shredder. Fury, man. And I mean, we're going to, you know, I know there was some talk about the way he wrapped his gloves, the size of his gloves in that fight. How Wilder was upset at his team because he wanted to go out on his shield. But here we are. We're caught up on Wilder Fury 3, I believe, right? Third match of this one. The trilogy fight here. 
Wilder going to come away with this one, or is Tyson going to slap him around again? I'll let you take that, Richie. You check out the last one, man? I did not see the last one. I saw the highlights. Um, I do know who both of these guys are. The the crazy thing about Fury is he's incredibly tall and he has incredible length. And but when you look at him and you look at his body, you go, "This guy, really? He just looks like an a normal guy, a normal Joe who, if he just walked up to you, but he the fact that he's six ten or six nine, whatever it is, is is a huge difference. But he doesn't look any different than us." Three normal guys sitting here having a conversation, you know, but but he has incredible length uh, and it's tough to get into a guy who can play that game and put his put his arms out and he can reach from a long way and he can also keep his body back and avoid a lot of punches. Um, Wilder, known for the knockout, known for, for coming in heavy, known for trying to go for that first round, first round knockout win. I, I I think if if they make it out of round one, I think you got to give the edge to Fury. Yeah, um, seeing that they're one and one right now, I would honestly say that Fury has a slight advantage. I and mean, I'm going to say this: Fury's a better boxer than than Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder has probably more pop and more bang, but. Tyson Fury jab is a little bit more effective. His feints, the way that he moves his ring generalship is a little bit more more fluid than Deontay Wilder's. Um, Deontay Wilder kind of he's really he's really heavy on that right, that one-two combination, that right hook, that, you know. He relies on that right too much. He needs to set up his punches. He needs to throw a couple feints, get Fury off balance, and come at different angles. Sometimes he's too flat right in front of Fury. He needs to take an angle, and he doesn't. He needs to keep his head off of the line. And what I mean by keeping his head off the line is he needs to move it from side to side and not go straight back. He has a great trainer, too, in Mark Breland. I don't understand why his defense isn't a little bit more impeccable, as Mike Tyson would say. But he really needs to work on his defense and how he's mixing up his punches because it can become pretty predictable. And when you have someone like Tyson Fury that has a great jab, as I said, good ring, ring generalship, has the ability to, to, to make you miss and make you pay for it, boxing is set up for the small, cerebral person that can make a person miss and, and take advantage of them. And I think that that's what, uh, even though Tyson Fury, uh, on the contrast, is a lot bigger than Wilder, too. And people don't realize that. He's like 30, 40 more pounds than uh, Wilder. So that's huge. Imagine trying to fight somebody that's even, you know, if you're a professional, that's 10 more pounds than you. That's a lot. Two more pounds than you. A pound at lightweight is huge. You know, that's a huge advantage. So to be fighting a heavyweight that's 30 35, 40 pounds heavier than you, you're already at a disadvantage. I'm just hoping that Wilder has looked at some tape, hope Mark Breland and then took him back there and, and gave him a little bit more information. I hope he's a little psychologically a little bit more there because um, I think he should have realized that his corner did him justice by stopping that fight. I know you want to go out on your shield, but you could have went out brain damage. 
And the first thing, first and foremost, most important thing for a boxer is, and from a trainer perspective and from a cornerman perspective, is to keep your fighter safe. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have summed that up any better, Marquilio. Uh, to, to slide from your moneymaker over to literally and figuratively my moneymaker, uh, which is the NCAA uh, college football. Guys, for the last three weeks, we've talked about the rumor, the rumors, the rumor, and now the actuality, the Big Ten has voted to return to college football. They will have an eight-game season. They will start October 24th. And much like Chris said last week, the university that is located in Madison, Wisconsin, is on shutdown. And despite that, we are going to have a Big Ten season. And piggybacking off of the Big Ten, this week there is expected to be a vote from the Pac-12 there is expected to be a vote from the MAC conference. Fellas, it's been rumors. It's been speculation. We now have the information. Chris is shaking his head. Chris, what are you feeling, man? I mean, what, what is your take on this? The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported today that 42 UWM players and staff members tested positive for COVID-19. 42. You're going to put them on a football field with X number of other kids, coaches, players, and you're going to expect this to go well. You know, I heard Michigan was the was the lone holdout. I'm sure there are some players, certainly after hearing Barry Alvarez's stance on, you know, hey, he told his players, there's not going to be football this season. We're not going to take advantage of the NCAA's offer to extend scholarships into next season we've told you to go ahead and make arrangements for next year well now there's a football season and up against the line i'm sure a lot of those players are going to go between missing my senior year and playing i'm going to show up and all of that as i say week after week is not enough to pay these players, right? We still can't play college players. They're going to put their lives on the line for this. We're going to send them into universities where Wisconsin reported over 2,000 cases of the coronavirus today. Today, right? As a new high. But you're going to send these unpaid athletes whose scholarships are tied directly to their tuition, to their education, to what they want to do moving forward. And you're going to tell them, hey, guess what? We're playing eight games this season. I think it's irresponsible. I thought that my understanding was Michigan was the lone holdout. Michigan was going to stand by it. I think you and I, Richie, had an interesting conversation about it. Um, I think yesterday where Michigan had made a number of comments about how unless their campus was open, they weren't going to be holding this and they were going to be the lone holdouts. I've seen a lot of outraged videos over it. I mean, I guess my question is, how long do we think this season's going to last? Yeah. Because the college football team is going to go down. 42 players at staff in, in UW-Madison, just the tip of the iceberg. It's going to, it's going to snowball. How are they going to play eight games this way? Yeah. What are they going to do? 
when they have to start rescheduling this because I think they've got five games in them before it all goes to pot. And I'm curious to see what kind of season we're going to have come out. What kind of championship is that going to be? I know that, what is it, the Navy Army, and I can't remember if it was Navy or Army, but I'm pretty sure it was Navy, is talking about how they only have to win two games to end up at a bowl game this season compared to army that's going to have to win statistically more and you're telling me this is a season i should take seriously yeah it's tough man it's really a tough situation because if they didn't play would there be an asterisk next to this season not having ohio state represented it is a question i think three weeks ago we didn't have the knowledge that we have now and the understanding of of the success of the bubble scenarios. We are on a period of time, and I, I guess my biggest question is seeing that those teams that, that had 10 to 11 games, they had put in some a bye week just in case if there was some type of outbreak or they'll have the capability to you know have a game to kind of throw away. I don't know what that's going to look like with it with eight games. I mean, if something was to happen and now you're down to, let's just say, six or, you know, seven games, is that equal to the, the 10 games that the ACC or the SEC, excuse me, is, is going to have? So it's just it's those type of questions. But I also think now that we're later within this process and the knowledge that we have about the bubble and what it's actually going to consist of, if we can get those kids healthy and get those good 10 to 14 days of quarantine out there. Now we're just trying to decipher if we're going to have the student body, as we spoke of before, leave the campus or do a virtual thing and kind of exclude these kids, which I think you're going to have to have. Um, you're, you're, you're getting just all type of situations. You have a situation where players that were opting out are, are even deciding to play right now. You have, um, what, what's the... Tevin Sheldon. Yeah, and, and also, I think it was someone else too. Um, Sean Wade today announced the same thing. Yeah, so, State. so you're going to have that. You're going to have situations where people were saying before that they weren't going to play and, and now you, you got the Penn State tight end, Pat, Pat Freemer, deciding to play when, when people was kind of thinking that he wasn't going to play as well. I was thinking that Neil Farrell initially said he wasn't going to play, but he decided to play too as well. So it's, it's interesting, man. It's interesting. Uh, with the corona, we're in unprecedented times and we're making, we're making changes on the fly. But I think that we can pull it off if we can put them in a controlled environment and make sure that they are, in fact, in the bubble. Other than that, we, who knows what's going to happen. It's going to be St. Louis Cardinals all over again. Before you jump into it, man, I think you've got a very unique perspective here. Because you are a defensive back coach at a college, and you have seen how this is playing out in real life, man. It, it, on the front lines, in real life, man, how are you dealing with it? How, how, how is your team dealing with it here? So every school has their own protocols. Every school is, is different in what they deem to be uh, the best situation for our players. The, the unique situation that I think with us is, as a staff, we have been together for a combined 111 years at the university, which is a long time for a staff to be together because typically you don't, you, you don't see that long continuity at, at, at our level. And so 
we have that family culture built. Our training staff has been there, the, you know, a very long time as well. And you, you just pray that that obviously we do the right thing, right? And, and what the right thing is is I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we can give that answer because everybody's opinion of what the right thing is is different. With that being said, what we've been able to do is we have found ways to effectively practice uh, maintaining social distancing. So with DBs, we have basically we get a half of the field. We have a dot set every five yards down each sideline. And then we have a dot set every nine to 12 feet going across the goal line. And what that allows us to do is have our DBs do work on drops and coverages using the entirety of the field while other people are maintaining their distance so nobody breaks that six-foot social distancing rule. Is it a pain? Absolutely. It's, it's a struggle. And again, the testing and, and the protocols and everything will change when you put pads on. With the D1 schools, they have the resources, they have more money, they have things that, that we don't have at our level. It, it, it's a struggle because you're trying to follow what the CDC is telling you. If, you. if you test positive, you're in quarantine 10 days. If you test negative, but you've been exposed, you're in 14 days. And so this whole thing is, is just a huge mess. And I, I just know being our head coach and our head trainer, it just it has to be miserable trying to balance that and maintain order as you're trying to do what's right for these kids. Uh, but you're also at the same time kind of put in a position where you do still have a job to do. So again, it's tough. We've seemed to at least find a way to effectively do it. But but again, the struggle of Every day, coach, I was exposed. Coach, I tested positive. Coach, I had to go get tested. I tested negative, but I have to stay in quarantine for this many days. Okay, well, now you have to do the, the exposed tree. And, and it's just, it's it's such a headache. Um, and, and again, you're, you're, and it's no fault to these young men, but when you talk about attempting to control 18 to 22 year olds, that in its own right is a battle you're trying to deal with. Well, I'm sure as anybody will tell you that we were perfect gentlemen at 18 to 22 and <laughs> yeah. perfectly susceptible to influence on all levels. With that, let's move from the talk about how we're going to play to the game to the games that were actually played, right? Iowa State versus Louisiana, Arkansas State versus Kansas. Richie, what happened? Yeah, well, so to me, here, here's where I want to start. I want to start with Arkansas State, Kansas State. I want to give a shout out, young man, Corey Rucker. I recruited him. I got him through the process. And then Arkansas State, for whatever reason, thought that they could just come in and swoop him from underneath me. And they did. And they did. Uh, I can't blame him for taking the full ride scholarship, but congratulations to him. He had two catches for 40 yards in the game. Um, that, that one was a, was a little bit of an upset. Louisiana and Iowa State was not an upset to me. Louisiana made some noise last year. They didn't necessarily get the credit from the poll voters and those, you know, the AP to, to kind of gain the, not the, to gain the popularity, to gain the, the national attention. But I think that is one of the benefits of everybody not playing right now. The Sun Belt is a very good conference that a lot of people don't know a lot about. 
And when you see these up and coming teams that are really good now getting a chance, whereas a Louisiana is moving into the polls, this is only going to bring good things for them. It's going to bring good things for their program. It's going to put them on a stage where now parity in college football might finally start to spread itself. Do, do people love the dynasties? Yes. The Nick Sabans, people love Nick Saban. You have Alabama fans. Do we love it? Yes. We, we get into the, all the hoopla. But the best thing for college football is parity. And, and having these different starts throughout the season, I think, is going to bring that. And so you talk about an Arkansas State getting a big win. You talk about a Louisiana getting a big win. You got teams like UTSA and Texas State playing on national television. Appalachian State and Charlotte on national television, but yet it was all overridden when Trevor Lawrence stepped on that field. The guy who's expected to go number one, who plays for the number one team, and all the eyes wanted to see how he was going to bounce back and how he was going to look in year three when people thought he kind of struggled in year two. Uh, Marquilio, I talked to you during that game you had said that you you basically it it was a good game to watch until it wasn't. But yeah, it was pretty much they expected, man. Trevor Lawrence was doing Trevor Lawrence type stuff. He was walking in the end zone and you know, it became it became just I, I became uninterested after a while. But what I will tell you and speak upon the parody that you're talking about, man, I don't think I've seen as many missed field goals and as many one-handed miracle catches that I, I haven't seen that many. In the last two weeks, I've seen in my whole life, like the catches that I've been seeing, like what to, I got to ask you this too, Rich. Man, what are they yeah. putting on them gloves? What, is, are, is, is it stickum? <laughs> what the heck? Are they just that much better? So stickum's illegal, but the gloves are, are that much better. Yeah, I can't tell, man. It's been amazing. You know, I'll <laughs> tell you this. What Louisiana did, for them to be ranked right now, the last time that they were a ranked team or come came out of tunnels as a as a ranked team was, what, World War II? <laughs> 1939? <laughs> so it's been a while. It's been a while since uh, they, they've came out. And, you know, to have that type of parody, have those type of stories is what I think makes college football, you know, Interesting, you know, you get tired of watching the the Alabamas and the LSUs and the Ohio States. You want to be intrigued by some other stories. And as long as Arkansas State has a fan in me forever now, they don't have to win another game. But as long as Jonathan Adams is playing football, I'm watching. I'm watching. I'm intrigued to see what that young man does, what he becomes. I mean... Amazing. I can't, man, come on. He might be the best college football player right now. Like, if he, if anyone was to get a bump on a rating uh, as far as a player, if it, we were playing like NFL, or excuse me, NCAA college football right now on PlayStation or the Xbox, you would have to move his player, his, his, his player up at least 15 points right now. Because this guy looks amazing, man. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. The the one guy that stuck out to me was a, was a player that you brought up who made one of the most amazing catches I've ever seen last week and that was Jeremiah Hadell from from Tech cuz that man yeah. was at it again in that game. 
he had a punt return for a touchdown that was called back. And, and trust me, I know the feeling. It is not a good feeling when you start celebrating in the end zone thinking you made this game-changing, this momentum-changing play to turn around and see the laundry on the field. But what this kid has shown as an athlete, catching the ball, the catch that he made last week, the ability as a return man, much like you said with Jamal, with Jamal Adams and what this kid right here is making a name for himself. And, and he's going to bring a lot of eyes uh, his way when it comes time for him to get drafted. He's going to bring a lot of eyes to that Texas state program. Who's going through a number of changes with the new staff. They are creating excitement around a program that hasn't had a lot of it. Cool, man. Cool. Mm -hmm. Kudos to them guys. Well, and you talk about surprises here, or you talk about expectations. Florida State, whole new coaching staff. What do you think? Positive, negative? Is it going to take them in the right direction? Is Florida State finally going to turn things around here? Are they? Is that going to be enough to get them over the hump? Yeah. So I think that the, here's the hard part with Florida State. So Florida State has what we call the the unrealistic expectation of oneself. And so Florida State believes that they should be able to win now and all the time. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, because of what they were able to achieve under Bobby Bowden and Jimbo Fisher. Now, the problem is at the college level, one bad coaching hire can change your program for a good five to 10 years, depending upon how long you let that coach stay. I thought Willie Taggart was going to do a great job. He didn't. The problem that you run into with this year's team is there's still guys on this roster that were recruited by Jimbo Fisher. So as Jimbo Fisher was making his exit from Florida State, he brought in these guys. And the, the talk is that when Jimbo kind of had an idea that he was leaving or was starting to get the idea that he was looking for a change those last couple of years there uh, after Jameis, he kind of just mailed it in. And the recruiting classes started to dip. You bring in Willie Taggart, who is now trying to change a culture from Jimbo, install his own. He brings in his guys. Now you got a mix of two coaches. And Florida State basically got so sick of Willie Taggart that they paid him to go away. So now you have two coaches that have their own guys. You now bring in Mike Norvell, who has his guys. So you have three different head coaches guys on a team, and you're trying to make it work. The biggest place that Florida State has struggled is up front. And it continued to show what I got out of this game was more about the young man who played quarterback on the other side. And that's Jeff Sims. Georgia Tech has now no longer runs the triple option. And they've gone to a more spread uh, athletic quarterback zone read uh, type of offense. And Jeff Sims, despite the fact he threw two picks in his very first college game as a true freshman, looked like a star in the making. If he continues to progress the way that he does, the nice part is going to be that the ACC may finally get somebody else, not named Clemson, to take that next step. Georgia Tech under Paul Johnson did it for a long time. They have the opportunity to bring kids back. When you're located in Atlanta, right downtown Atlanta, Georgia, you can't tell me you can't convince kids to come there. But again, they're going to be able to rebuild and again, I thought I think I got more positive out of Georgia Tech than I did that of Florida State. Yeah, Florida State is like one of those teams that I fell in love with, like growing up, just because 
of Dion. You know what I'm saying? You got you got Charlie Charlie Ward. You know, you got Leroy Butler from you know Packers and, and invented the Lambo League. I mean, it's so many, man. Peter Ward. It's so many, but you you hope that they get back that Florida State mystique and start back winning, man. Because I know, like as I said, growing up, I love that team, and to see what they're doing right now, you know, I'm, it's almost heartbreaking. You would think that Florida State would be definitely one of those teams would be be competing right now, especially when Jameis Winston won in 2013-14. You were like, hey, they're back. And it was aunt, wrong answer. <laughs> well, and it's it, again, it's a hard expectation to determine when you have a university like a Florida State. You look at the success of Florida and you think about Florida as a state when it comes to where they rank uh, in terms of their high school product. Many people would probably go to bat and say Florida has the best high school football in the country, which isn't far from the truth uh, when you look around the country. Um but, but again, the expectation is they need to win. They need to win now. They need to win often. Everybody wants to do that. The problem is, is chancellors and presidents and athletic directors are no longer giving coaches time um, to be able to do that. Uh, but with that being said, we're going to uh, jump into another break here. And coming out on the other side, we are going to lead off with Chris heading into the Major League Baseball playoffs and follow up with Markelio and what is about to be the NBA Finals. Yes! What? what? 